Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we head to the Roaring Fork Valley to get a look at what could be ahead for this year's wildfire season. Plus, we hear how some people with disabilities are feeling as the end of the pandemic draws closer. The pandemic experience in America brought to light inequities in a whole bunch of areas. And we learn about a trademark infringement lawsuit from a Weld County wildlife sanctuary. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Much of northeastern Colorado is now officially drought-free. According to the latest U.S. Drought Monitor, a wet spring has provided significant relief to the northern front range and northeastern plains. The western slope is still in one of the worst dry periods of the last decade, however. And though much of the state is seeing some relief, extreme to exceptional drought conditions are still affecting nearly a third of Colorado. Last year, drought conditions contributed to vicious wildfires that tore through Colorado. That included the three largest blazes in the state's history, as well as the Grizzly Creek Fire, which burned more than 30,000 acres near Glenwood Springs. Now, with summer right around the corner, experts say conditions are ripe for wildfires again. Alex Hager has this look ahead. For the people who monitor wildfires in this area, last summer's burns are still casting a shadow over this year's preparation. Leanne Veldheis is one of those people as a district ranger with the White River National Forest. I think there's a lot of exhaustion from last season that everyone's still feeling. And so to already be ramping up for what everyone's expecting to be another big season nationally um, is, is, yeah, I think at the top of the list of just making sure that our people are being resilient and and safe and um, ready to go again. Veldheis and others are looking ahead and working on planning and preparedness as the heart of the fire season draws closer. Everyone is, is a little bit on edge while, we'll, while we wait and see what's going to happen this summer. They're on edge because forecasters around here are saying almost every indicator points to a season primed for burning. Jim Janung is a fire manager based out of Rifle who studies the BLM and national forest land in this area. Things can turn on a dime around here. And I'm hoping it does, maybe just with the with some moisture coming in. But I, I, I got to say, it's it's starting to look a little bit like we're going to head into a busy summer again. Janung bases his predictions on a few factors. Precipitation in the months leading up to fire season plays a role. And in the early and closing days of this past winter, there was not much of it. March and September, you know, you get some big storms. We just didn't get the big storms all winter that we would typically get. There was one or two cycles there that were okay, but usually we get maybe three to five really good snow cycles. And on the warmer end of the valley, Rifle only got three inches of precipitation all year. That's not even a quarter of the annual average. That all means everything on the ground has been left at higher risk for burning. Dead plants are a big part of that. Everything from twigs the size of your finger to fallen trees. Researchers measure the level of moisture held in all of those. We are seeing low numbers right now at the lower elevations. And some of those some of those numbers are, you know, a little I don't want to say startling, but um, low. Another factor, plants that are still living, everything from sagebrush to towering evergreens. When they're lush and verdant, they're full of moisture and less likely to burn. But in recent years, Janung has noticed those plants are less saturated at their peak and then dry all the way out before they're supposed to. 
typically you see leaves change colors in you know September, October. We're seeing leaves change colors in August on some of the brush types. You know, it drops off back to near dormancy two months early, maybe. On top of all those natural factors are human risks. Janung says increased visitation to the area and its outdoor spaces is driving up the chances of a human-caused wildfire. And that means everybody needs to be more vigilant. If we're in a place where, you know, we're saying it's too dry, no fires, you know, I would hope people would respect that. There's things like a dragging chain on your trailer that could basically, you know, start a large wildfire. Be cognizant of what is going on around you on these windy days, dry, windy days. And while people can take their own prevention measures, governments and firefighters on the ground are preparing their response in the event of the next catastrophic burn, which is getting more and more likely with a change in climate. We have no reason to believe in the Roaring Fork Valley that we we are not next. I don't think our, our luck will continue to hold. We definitely have to plan for the worst. That's Valerie McDonald, Pitkin County's emergency manager. It's her job to make sure that when the next big fire comes, the impact to people and structures is as small as it can be. She says residents need to take steps beforehand. We need them to be aware of the risk and to actually mitigate their risk. Doing that by clearing defensible space, hardening their home, using fire-resistant materials when possible. And a real hot button for me is evacuation planning. Because a big fire in our neck of the woods will be at some point inevitable, she says more people need a concrete plan for how to leave their home, where they're going to go, and how to make sure they can do it quickly. That was Alex Hager reporting for Aspen Public Radio. The Wild Animal Sanctuary in Keensburg has rescued hundreds of wild animals from zoos and private collections, including more than 90 animals rescued from the stars of the now infamous Netflix series Tiger King. Thousands of visitors each year amble along the elevated walkway to see lions, tigers, bears, wolves, and other rescued wildlife in a natural and open setting. Last week, the sanctuary filed a trademark infringement lawsuit against a company that has a very similar name and website. The case, filed in federal court in Denver, alleges that the Wildlife Sanctuary Fund has usurped the Weld County nonprofit's trademarks and has confused donors with its fundraising efforts since 2019. Ken Amundsen has been following this. He's the managing editor for Biz West, and he's here with us now to tell us more about the case. Ken, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. So the Wild Animal Sanctuary, that's the one here in Colorado, was founded and run by Pat Craig. They rely on donations as well as, you know, some of the things I mentioned, visitor admissions and memberships to do their work. So their name is pretty important in all of this. What is the legal argument being made here? Well, the names are quite similar. And, you know, just if you were reading something in a in a magazine or whatever, you would confuse them probably. Um, So we have the Wild Animal Sanctuary based in Keensburg, and then the other entity is called Wildlife Sanctuary Fund. And the Wildlife Sanctuary Fund's URL is almost exactly the same as the Keensburg entities. It uh, it is wildanimalsanctuaryfund.org quite similar, and uh, the wild animal sanctuary in Keensburg has had some potential donors who have been confused and have uh, contributed to the wrong entity. And so what can you tell us about this other entity, Wildlife Sanctuary Fund? That's registered as a nonprofit in Montana, but who runs it? Well, it it is registered in Montana. However, it's being run from a residential address in Peoria, Arizona. 
This is based upon the allegations in the lawsuit, of course. There's a couple of individuals attached to that, uh, an individual named Lon Taylor and also Elizabeth Taylor. They also have numerous other charities that they're operating from that same address based upon their IRS Form 990s uh, and other disclosures. Yeah, and I thought that was an interesting part in all this. Pat Craig, who I mentioned was uh, the owner and operator of Wild Animal Sanctuary, he did some digging on his own and kind of found a lot of interesting stuff here. Tell us about that. He discovered this just in a, in a Google search and uh, started looking into it. Uh, Pat is quite adept at understanding nonprofits and uh, in you know how the the various legal filings have to be made. And uh, he discovered then that at that same address and involving these two individuals and some other individuals kind of interlocking boards of directors and that sort of thing. But these other charities that uh, he found included uh, a wide range of entities. And I'll just read off a couple of them here or a few of them here so you get a sense for what he found. Again, this is according to the lawsuit. Um, These other charities were Wild Animal Preservation Fund, Feeding Hungry Children, Inc., Puppies, Kittens, Rescue Fund, Diabetes Aid Prevention Fund, Anti-Animal Cruelty Campaign, Save the Animals, Cancer Aid Prevention Fund, and on and on. So uh, a number of of health-related charities, uh, children-related charities, and animal-related charities that were all being run from this same address. And is that common in the world of nonprofits, or does this maybe stand out to you as someone sort of ensconced in the business world as maybe a little suspect? Uh, it seemed quite unusual to me. Now, I'm, I don't claim to be an expert, but uh, it did seem to be uh, unusual. And then the the wide range of different entities that uh, were being operated by these individuals from the same address seemed to be quite unusual. And do we know whether or not they are legitimate organizations? Well, they, they file their IRS 990s. They uh, do that sort of thing. Um, they do not disclose a great deal to these groups that that try to track charities and determine uh, you know how much of their money is going to administration and how much is really going to charity they don't do disclosures to those organizations so it's somewhat of a mystery how uh, legitimate they are well that takes us back to the legal issue at hand here these kinds of legal battles obviously stretch on for months or even years the lawsuit was just filed last week but what happens next and what are Pat Craig and the Wild Animal Sanctuary hoping for in, in terms of a resolution to this case? Well, as you mentioned, uh, this uh, lawsuit was filed last week, so it'll take a while to grind through the courts. And then who knows, there may be appeals and everything else. But it's a federal trademark case. Um, it also alleges unfair competition, cyber piracy, false advertising, deceptive trade practices. And in the end, uh, Pat Craig and his organization hope that damages will be awarded. And in this particular case, if it is fraud, it could be triple damages. And uh, they also hope to gain that entity's donations that were attributable to the trademark infringement, which is maybe a little unusual, but uh, I can see where that's coming from. And then, of course, they hope for an injunction to keep these parties from doing this in the future. Well, what are you watching out for next? What is going to be the next thing that sort of happens in all this? Well, there'll be a response from the defendant in this particular case. There'll be a response from them. And then uh, after that, then the court will determine the next step. I suppose that there could be a settlement outside of court or there could be a, a court hearing on it. 
Ken Amundsen is the managing editor of BizWest. You'll find a link to this story, more details at our website, KUNC.org. Ken, thanks for breaking this down with us. Happy to do so. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. As vaccines become more accessible and summer draws closer, some folks are hoping for a return to life before the pandemic. But some people with disabilities say the pandemic created opportunities like working from home and online concerts that improved accessibility like never before. We asked Coloradans who have disabilities to send us some emails and messages about what the pandemic was like for them. We wanted to learn about how they navigated through the last year and what they want the world ahead to look like. Colorado Edition's Tess Novotny recently discussed the responses with Julie Reiskin, the executive director of Colorado Cross Disability Coalition. Julie is in a wheelchair and she has multiple sclerosis. She started by sharing what the pandemic has been like for those in the disability community. As soon as this started, I started getting calls about from people kind of asking, well, what, how is this affecting the disability community and what do people need? I kept saying, you know, instead of asking what we need, maybe you should talk about what assets we have in our community, because in our community, we have people who have had to stay at home for a year, who know how to do that, who have people who have maybe been on bed rest from a pressure sore and couldn't had to learn how to live you know, in one room, often not without getting up, even for a year. We have a lot of people who know how to suddenly go from a decent income to no income or very little income and how to survive that. Our community really became a resource for people. And then also, you know, people were were very affected. We have a lot of people in our community that absolutely would not have survived COVID because of the numerous, you know, what they now call underlying conditions. And so, you know, so there was also a lot of fear in our community. We have some messages to read and listen to from Coloradans with disabilities. And I want to start with an email we received from Jessalyn Small. She is an autistic advocate in Aurora. She said, What impacted my life were all the things that I suddenly had access to that I never did before, simply because now, with COVID, able-bodied people also didn't have access to these things. It hurt that our needs were so invisible until they became everyone's needs. It scares me that any inches we gained for accessibility during the pandemic could be lost when they are no longer convenient for able-bodied folks. And we also got a similar email from Allison Dawson in Laporte, who said she feels uncomfortable hearing others talk about opening up when she knows her life won't change that much. It sounds like Jessalyn and Allison have pretty mixed emotions about how accessibility expanded during the pandemic. Do you share those feelings? I completely agree with the sentiments there, and we've heard, I've heard a lot from people with disabilities who had asked to work at home for disability-related reasons and were either denied or maybe they were approved but kind of ridiculed and made to feel like they were getting something that they shouldn't have. And I think that's absolutely right. Until non-disabled people needed it, 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 it was seen as impossible or too difficult or how do you monitor people? And then when everyone needed it, all of a sudden it was, of course, you can do this. Many of us in the social justice space, and that's people with disabilities, I've also hear this a lot from com- leaders in communities of color, are very nervous about saying, let's just go back to normal because what was normal was not equitable. It was very inequitable. And so just go, just trying to reset the clock and go back to February 2020 is not what any of us want. And so it's really important that we don't just try and flip a switch. The pandemic experience in America brought to light inequities in a whole bunch of areas. And one of the things that terrifies me is that we're just going to forget that it happened. 
We got another email from Allison in the port. She also told us how she felt about people shrugging off health precautions throughout the pandemic. Allison wrote, watching statements from people who refuse to wear masks or socially distance and seeing that they found the disability community and their elders completely expendable was so disheartening. I knew that there were attitudes like this toward disability before, but this eugenic survival of the fittest type thinking being broadcast out loud was appalling and sad. I find it infuriating. The the level of, of self-absorption to not care if someone else lives or dies is a little bit beyond my, my comprehension. And I think I want to keep it that I don't know that I want to understand it. One of the things that was really hard is there were people who didn't want to wear a mask for whatever selfish reason. They made up these cards on the internet and were passing them out saying the Americans with Disabilities Act exempts me from having to wear a mask. That That is not true. Wow. So people were forging fake documents that said they were disabled just to try to get out of wearing masks. Yeah, our attorneys took a, took a position that it's actually somewhere on our website still that says, no, the Americans with Disabilities does not say that if it's a public health measure, even if you cannot wear a mask due to, due to a genuine disability, which I, most of these people did not have, you can still be excluded from a public place because it's a public health issue. There's something in the ADA that says if, if you're disability accommodation causes a direct threat, you don't have to have it. So that was very difficult. And we, we put a lot of time and work into saying, no, everyone has to follow the rules. There are rare instances of, for example, there are people who might have a facial like disfigurement where they don't have an e, they don't have ears, and and we have people who don't have any use of their hands, and they maybe can't get a mask on and off themselves. So that people with rare, very very severe breathing problems might not be able to wear a mask for long, but most people, the vast majority of people with disabilities, can wear a mask, and and did even even folks like in the deaf community where it was really hard for them to communicate. They did it because it was the right thing to do. And it was about protecting other people when people would say, well, I'm healthy. Well, wearing a mask, you wear a mask for everyone else. It's part of what you do when you live in a society. And I guess if someone wants to be such a survivalist, they could, you know, maybe go live by themselves way far away from everyone else. But I just find that incredible, that that level of self-absorption and selfishness really disturbing because everyone's life should be valued. I want to turn to another message that we got. Robin Bolduck of Broomfield wrote to us about caring for her 67-year-old husband, Bruce, during the pandemic. Bruce is fully paralyzed due to primary progressive multiple sclerosis. Prior to COVID, Robin said Bruce had an active lifestyle supported by a team of personal care attendants. But at the beginning of the pandemic, they lost three of those attendants, which was half of their staff. Robin said, We chose not to replace all three attendants so as not to bring more people and risk into our home. Total isolation was not an option for us due to Bruce's high level of needs. To date, we have not been able to replace any of the lost staff for more than a month at a time. Finding an attendant during COVID is challenging. While we look for the skills and work history of a candidate, we also must consider their risk factors for bringing COVID into our home. Is this experience unique or have other Coloradans with disabilities struggled to find and keep care staff during the pandemic? Oh, no, it's been an absolute struggle around the state. Um, The Colorado Trust published an article several months ago about rural Colorado, and uh, I think it was focused on Durango and in that that exact same problem. And we've heard from people around the state that, that that's a problem. I think there are a number of factors that contributed to it. Some of it is 
what risk do you bring into your house? Because generally the pool of personal care workers are generally younger people, often with children, often in multi-generational households. So they have concern about their risk and we have concern about what risk comes into our house. So particularly people that need a high staff, those of us who have lesser disabilities like myself, like I was able to limit it to only two workers, but that was fine for me. Whereas for, for Robin and Bruce, two workers is nowhere near enough. I want to play a voicemail that we received from Dan Berlin. He lives in Fort Collins and he is blind. I tend to get around by um, navigating, say, a grocery store by touching the products that are there and um, oftentimes reaching out and feeling the surface or a doorway. And during COVID, of course, as we all realize that touching has become a pretty negative thing to be doing out in public. So this has made it very difficult, especially to the fact that being blind, I also rely on close contact with many other people. Being a runner often will run with guides. Holding an elbow or a shoulder, you know, has also become an issue. I think lastly, too, the ability to see if somebody's wearing a mask or frankly how close I am to someone else uh, runs the risk of making someone else feel uncomfortable. Julie, have you heard of these experiences that Dan described from other folks who are blind? Yes, I have, um, particularly around the inability to socially distance. I think the touching surfaces issue was more of an issue earlier in the pandemic. I can't, again, I think all of our sense of time has gotten blurred, but it it was only a couple months before I think we realized that it really doesn't live on surfaces that much. And even when we were trying to work with the hospitals on information for people with disabilities, like telling what your visitation policies were and advanced directives and all of that stuff, we were we were struggling trying to figure out what do we do for blind folks, because in the past we would say have a couple Braille copies. And you give them to someone, they read it with their hands, and then, you know, they give it back. So we're like, do we get them laminated and then wash them or, you know, we were we're struggling with that. And luckily it kind of turned out that that wasn't the issue we thought it was. And and similar issues the blind community dealt with around when everything was drive-through. And even still, I mean, we're now starting to see like even the vaccine clinics being able to be walk-in, like so you can take the bus and Go, go on foot and you don't have to be in a car. But with COVID testing for a long time, you had, there was no way to get a COVID test if you, didn't have, if you didn't have your own car. Right. I want to turn to maybe some of the positive pandemic outcomes for people with disabilities. And I want to read you something else that Robin Boldick sent us. She said, before the pandemic, her husband Bruce had to visit each of his multiple sclerosis specialists in person at least once per year. She wrote, we would see the doctor for about 10 minutes in order for him to check off a form that he had seen Bruce and nothing had changed. Now, we make an online virtual appointment and from the comfort of our home, Bruce sees a specialist for 10 minutes. We've heard a lot about how virtual medicine has advanced so much during the pandemic. How do you think the kind of changes Robin described have impacted Coloradans with disabilities? Oh, we love telemedicine. And there's been other things that have been made easier. Medicaid changed some rules and allowed us to, we have to meet with case managers a couple times a year and they've allowed us to do that by phone, which has been really, really nice. So a lot a lot of things that are, were, were they were said, oh no, it has to be in person. We can't possibly do this on the phone or virtually. We're now able to do virtually. 
Right. And do you think that that switch to more virtual medicine and virtual appointments, is that going to carry on after the pandemic and be something that people with disabilities can still access? Well, to the to the point made earlier by the first person that you read, yeah, I think it will stay because it because non-disabled people like it, the people with power like it. And so I don't think anyone's going to dare take that away. Uh, sadly, I think if it were only people with disabilities, we might be having a different conversation. Right. So we've been talking about sort of different ways that life may change because of the pandemic. And I just want to end by asking you, what do you want the world to look like when this is all over? What I want the world to look like is I want when when people plan and design things, whether it's a job description or a social event or a government program, voting, all of this stuff, to look at things with an inclusive design model, to not just look at how have we always done it, but how do we need to do it? And how do we do it in a way that's inclusive for everyone to participate? Not just focus on people with disabilities, but how does this work for everyone? How does this benefit all of us as a community? And to see the gifts of people with disabilities, not just the needs. Julie Reiskin is the executive director of Colorado Cross Disability Coalition. Julie, thank you so much. Thank you. That's our show for today. Next time on Colorado Edition, drone technology has rapidly taken off from its origins in the military, and drones are now entering the arena of competitive esports. We'll have more on that on tomorrow's show. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 